If you have your Bibles, grab them and go to Matthew chapter 10. We are not going to do a Father's Day sermon. We are going to do a Matthew chapter 10 sermon. And I'm going to warn you right now, this is a doozy, okay? Uh, This is one of those, it's one of those sermons. So Matthew chapter 10, let me just kind of set the context. If you have a Bible, go there. If you have a Bible app, open it on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table here. These are our gift to you, and I can pretty much guarantee you that there's no church in the city that's preaching this text on Father's Day this morning. You'll see why when we get there. So Matthew chapter 10, here's the context. Jesus is, uh, he's calling, he's empowering his disciples. He's called and empowered his 12 disciples, and he's about to send them, or he has sent them. We're in the middle of what is called Jesus's missionary discourse. So he's about to send out his 12 disciples to go out on mission. And if you were here last week, we spent a lot of time unpacking that idea that we are the sent people of God, that we are we are missionaries. That's actually the word that we use, that, that we are the missional people of God, that God's given us his spirit. And the reason he's given us the spirit is to empower us to testify to the, the lost world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like that is your, that is your identity. I can't like overemphasize this. Like our heart, our prayer for, for not just our church, but for all the churches. We pray this every single day at, at 1002 in conjunction with Luke chapter 10, verse two, where, where we are instructed by Jesus to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. Part of that prayer isn't just that God, you would send more Christians who would come to church, listen to sermons, sing worship songs and go home. It's Lord, would you raise up the Christians in this city to see themselves as missionaries? Like you are a full-time missionary. You are in full-time ministry. When people ask me, how many staff do you have at West Village? I just do a quick rough count and go, we've got about 250 people that call this their church. We have 250 staff. You're on staff full-time at West Village and your ministry, what your job description is, is to be on mission in the city to make disciples who make disciples. It's not my job. I'm a part of the team for sure but it is also your job. And so Jesus calls us, he empowers us, and then he sends us. We hear that and we get terrified because we haven't probably been trained in how to do that. We probably don't have a clue how to do that. There's a whole bunch of reasons why this scares us. But look at what, if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse five, which is where we, we started last week, it says, these 12 Jesus sent out, so we're the sent people of God, with the following instructions. He gives them instructions. This is literally a military term. In effect, what Jesus is doing here is he's actually giving his disciples the marching orders. So you're a missionary. I don't know how to be a missionary, Jesus. Okay, I'm going to give you instructions. This is how you are to live as a missionary. So what we're going to see in the text this morning, and really all through Matthew chapter 10, is how do we be a missionary? And I'm warning you, It's not as great as it sounds when we tell cool stories about being on mission. I mean, Jesus's version isn't to give you, he's not going to soft sell this. Okay. He's not, he's not going to lower the bar to try and make you kind of want to, you know, follow. He's going to set the bar high. And really what he's doing here is he's, he's asking the question. And this is a question that we have to ask regularly because these are the verses that we don't put on the mugs, right? When you get the cool mug, when you come to West Village, it's not like, you know, Matthew chapter 10, it's not on there. We do the nice ones about God has a wonderful plan for your life and, you know, God loves you so much. You're the apple of his eye, you know, all that stuff. But what he's doing here is he's, he's forcing you to, to really evaluate what do you believe? Who do you follow? Do you really love Jesus? Do you really want to follow him? Do you, are you really serious about his mission? Are you, are, are you just playing games? Are you, are you just playing games with God? Are you just playing church games? Are you just playing religious games, or, or are you actually a follower of Jesus? Or are you just really into this thing because 
It feels good. You want to have a nice, comfortable life. You want to have a moral life. You want to have a nice family. Jesus is going, that's not what this is about. Okay, so what he's going to do here, he's going to give us three instructions. And again, I'm, <laughs> it's all about persecution. Okay, it's all about the persecution you're going to face if you are a follower of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 10, we're going to pick up this morning uh, in verse 16. So here's what Jesus says. Here's his first instruction to us this morning. I'm sent, <laughs> sorry. Oh, this is why people don't teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, okay? I'm just telling you straight up, this is why they don't do it. Because you come to verses like this, and you're like, really? I got to say this out loud in a room full of people? This is awkward. Okay, so you want to be my disciple. Okay, great. You want to follow me on mission. Okay, great. Here we go. Verse 16. I'll try again without cracking a smile. Therefore, I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. There's your first instruction. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple then here's how this is going to work. I'm going to send you out into the field because like, you're sheep and all that you're going to encounter, you're going to encounter wolves. Now, I, again, I, I don't know a lot about animals, farming. This is not my thing. I don't know anything about this. But without doing too much research, without studying the Greek words of any of this, I'm going to guess that what this means is the wolves are going to devour the sheep. That's how this works, right? Is that how it works? Wolves eat sheep. Somebody nod in affirmation so I don't preach heresy here, okay? Yeah, okay. So, so here's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to live on mission for me, if you're going to actually follow me, then I'm going to send you out in such a way that you are going to be devoured. I don't know what else to say about this. Now, that's right. Like, who's in, right? Sign up for this. Like, you sure you want to get baptized? Like, we didn't preach this the week before the baptisms because we just wanted to trick all the people that got baptized last week. Nine people got baptized last week, praise God. They're all probably rethinking their decision right now. But, but, he, but here's what Jesus is saying, is if you're going to follow me, then it's, it's going to be hard. You're going to get sent out into the field, and, and you, are, you are going to get devoured by wolves. They're going to, they're going to encircle you. They're, they're, they're going to come after you. They're going, to, they're going to want to harm you. They're going to want to hurt you. Now, think about this with me for a second, because one of the dominant images that Jesus paints of himself is that he's a shepherd, right? This is in John's gospel. He calls himself, you know, the, the great shepherd, shepherd, Peter, and first Peter calls himself, or calls Jesus, rather, the chief shepherd. Now, again, I don't, I'm not a shepherd. I've never been a shepherd. But I would think if, if I was a shepherd, that what I wouldn't do is send my sheep out into a field to be devoured by wolves. And yet this is what Jesus does. So, so I, I think we have to ask some questions. I think we have to ask, like, why would Jesus do this? Why would this be his marching orders for his followers? Like, what's he getting after here? What's his heart here? Now, now one of the things I think we have to just sit with for a second is that Many times when, when we think about what it means to follow Jesus, we think about some, things like this. That, that if we're in the center of the will of God, that our lives are going to be really great. I mean, how many times have you heard this, right? The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God, right? This is like the, again, the kind of thing they put on mugs. It's the kind of thing they put on Christian greeting cards. Well, according to Jesus, that's not the case, now, let me just be clear here. Theologically, I think there's some truth there. And we're going to see that in this text. That theologically, when we are in the center of the will of God, for sure, we experience joy. We experience satisfaction. We experience the fullness of the presence of God. This is a good thing. This is what we want. However, if we're talking about just 
the life that we want to live versus the life that Jesus is calling us to live, I think most of us would probably pick different things for ourselves than Jesus would pick for us. Most of us would pick a life of comfort. Most of us would pick a life of safety. Most of us would pick a life of prosperity. Most of us would pick a life that looks something like the West Coast, suburban, 2.3 kids, white picket fence, uh, SUV, 700, 800,000, million point, whatever dollar house. That's the life we're going to pick. And Jesus is suggesting here that the life he would pick for us is something different than that. That the life he would pick for us is, is one of hardship. The life that he would pick for us is one where, where wolves are actually coming after you and going to devour you. You see, so often the Christian life we try and live is one where we build fences around our lives to protect us from the wolves. And Jesus' call is to go be among the wolves. Now, I want you to notice what this text doesn't say. Again, let's read it really quick here. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. So what is Jesus not saying here? What he's not saying is, I'm going to let you be devoured by the wolves. He is saying, I'm going to send you out among the wolves, but I'm not going to let the wolves devour you. Now, imagine this with me for a second. Imagine you're, you know, Mary had a little lamb. You're a little lamb, okay? Your fleece, it's as white as snow. Never, never mind. And you, you, you go out into the field. You and all your other, are sheep and lambs the same thing? Yeah, no. You don't know either. Okay, this is great. I can just make stuff up. Nobody has a clue. Anyway, the sheep's in the field. You're all out in the field. And the wolves, they, they come around you. And you're terrified. Now, again, I don't know how much, like, the frontal lobes of sheeps are developed, okay? So I don't know if this is actually what would happen uh, inside the mind of a sheep. But just, just pretend with me for a second that this is how this is going to work. What is the sheep going to do? Like, they're not thinking, like, okay, let, this is going down. Let's, let's roll up the sleeves and let's have a fist fight with the wolves. They're probably looking for their shepherd, right? The wolves are around us. They're coming after us. They're encircling us. They're pursuing us. My life is being threatened. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm unsure of what's next. Where's my shepherd? He, he's the only one who can save me in this moment. He's the only one who has the ability to come in and protect us and save us and get us out of this mess. And, and so here, here I think is what Jesus is wanting us to see here is I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. And here's what's going to happen. Everything that you hold on to, everything that you cling to for safety, everything that you, that you so deeply want and so deeply desire that you think is going to keep you safe and keep you out of harm's way and keep you comfortable. I'm willing to let those things be devoured. Why? So that you'll look for me. You see, it's possible that Jesus is willing to let all of our expectations of what it means to follow him, all of our expectations of what we have for our own lives, he's willing to let those things die 
so that we will actually seek after him. So that we will actually get to this place where we feel like the wolves are coming. They're coming. And I have nowhere else to turn. See, C.S. Lewis, he used this uh, analogy to describe our relationship with Jesus and the ways in which God can work in our life. And, and he said, sometimes our hands are so full with other things that there's actually no room for Jesus. When my life is going great, when I have everything under control, when I have a full fridge, zeros in the bank, and life is just awesome, I, I don't need Jesus. But when tragedy hits, when hardship hits, when pain comes my way, where's the first place that I go? To my shepherd. And, and could it be, could it be the thing that you're most afraid of, the tragedy that you're walking through right now, the thing that you're possibly doing everything in your power to avoid because you would never want it to happen to you could actually be your moment of salvation. And you're robbing yourself of an opportunity to meet with Jesus in a way like you've never met with him before because you're doing a great job at running your own life. Jesus says, I want you to go out among the wolves, but I'm not going to leave you out there on your own. I'm going to meet you in your deepest place of brokenness and need, and it's there that you'll actually find me. Now, with each of these instructions, Jesus gives a qualifier. So look at what it says, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, in other words, because of that, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. So Jesus gives some instructions on how we are to live when we are sent out like sheep among the wolves. And, and I think what he's getting at here, what, he, what he's saying is oftentimes you get sent out like sheep among the wolves and there's two natural reactions, right? One is fight and the other one is flight. Uh, we we want to fight. We want to just fight and do everything we can and work as hard as we can to get ourselves out of hardship. So when, when hardship comes our way, when pain comes our way, when suffering comes our way, maybe you're this guy. You're like the fix-it guy. You want to just roll your sleeves up and get to work. There's a problem. I have the answer. I'm going to try really, really hard to solve this problem. That's the fight guy. Then there's the flight guy or gal, right? I guess guy or, guy or gal could be either. Either of these could be guy or gal. There's the flight response. The flight response is, I'm just going to pretend this problem doesn't exist. I'm going to bury my head in the sand and just pretend this isn't actually happening. Jesus is saying neither of those are very good ideas. So, so what he says to us, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Now, again, what, what is he getting after here? He's saying be shrewd as snakes. He, what he's saying is a snake is cunning. A snake, uh, you know, snakes are, are wise. The, 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 they have an idea of how to navigate in and out of situations. So, so when he's talking about being shrewd as snakes, what he's saying is, you don't need to pursue hardship. Like what Jesus is not calling us to is a life of self-flagellation. He's not calling us to go out and find reasons to get yourself into trouble. Some of you are very good at that. That's not what Jesus is asking you to do. He's not going, he's not asking you to go out onto social media and share memes of things that are going to unnecessarily cause you 
harm and conflict. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying to go downtown with signs, you know, hold them up, get people really upset with you. And then when they, they come after you, well, that's, you know, I'm just like a sheep among wolves. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's not saying be a moron. Okay. Uh, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying use wisdom. It's okay to navigate in and out of pain. But he qualifies it by saying be as innocent as doves. In other words, dove, a sign of purity, a sign of holiness, a sign of, of innocence. He's saying there's this real sense in which while we navigate in and out of pain and hardship and we use our, our, our wisdom and our intellect to, to get around these things, we don't intentionally pursue uh, pain and hardship, we also don't avoid it because we're afraid. We remain faithful to Jesus. We remain holy, set apart for his call. We remain faithful to the things that he's called us to do. We remain faithful to the people that he's called us to be among. And, and what Jesus is ultimately asking us to do is to, to, to be willing to. This is what he's saying. Remember, he's sending us out as missionaries. Be willing to give up everything for the sake of the mission because in this place of giving up everything, you're going to actually find me. You're going to actually discover how great I am when I can sustain you through the hardest trouble that you've ever experienced. He goes on. He gives another instruction. Verse 17, he says this, Be on your guard, for you'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Verse 18, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. So, so again, we get this picture of Jesus sending out his disciples. They're remaining faithful to the gospel. They're, they're teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, just as Jesus has done, just as he's modeled, and now he's sending them out to do the same thing. And what's the result? They get dragged in front of judges. They get dragged in front of governors, and they're called to give an account. In other words, what's going to happen is as you preach the gospel, as you proclaim the gospel, people are going to come against you, and they're going to want you to stop doing this. They're going to they're they're critique you, they're going to persecute you. Uh, they're not going to be happy with your preaching of the gospel. They're not going to be happy with the life you're living because the life you're living is so countercultural that it runs against the grain of, of the culture you're living in in such a way that it actually causes there to be some friction, some resistance. That's what the word persecution literally means, that there's this friction, this tension that exists between you and your host culture. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. If you go just a few pages to the left, if you go Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus actually says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you when, you, uh, when people insult you or persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. So again, we get this picture from Jesus that, that his message, his kingdom message, while it does indeed bring hope, while it does indeed bring healing, there's a cost to it. There's hardship that comes with being someone who's going to follow Jesus and proclaim the message of the gospel. If we never experience hardship as a result of following Jesus, again, it's possible we're not actually following him in the way that he intended us to follow him. We, again, not to be too hyperbolic here, like you hear this, you're like, well, I, I don't think that's going to happen here to me. I think there's a trajectory in our culture whereby the gospel is becoming increasingly more offensive. 
Where if you identify as a follower, like if you go to a party and you identify as a follower of Jesus, that that isn't necessarily the most popular name to identify by. And Jesus is saying, you need to be prepared that you're going to come against this stuff. That to pledge allegiance to me as your king, it's going to cost something. I feel like we have it really easy here. And we, we see that as a great benefit, right? Oftentimes we fight for our own rights as followers of Jesus. And I think we do so at the detriment to the health of the church. If you just thumb your fingers through the pages of church history, here's, here's what you're going to see. That the church, the times in church history where the church was the most potent, where it was the most effective, where the most people meet Jesus is when the church is under pressure and oppression and hardship and persecution. It's not a coincidence that right now in countries where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus, the church is actually exploding. And in the Western world, where for the most part it's safe and, you know, you might get a nasty email or a weird look or get laughed at at a party, it's actually not that hard to be a follower of Jesus here. It's in countries like this where the church is on a steep decline. Christianity is losing its ground because comfort creates this anemic reality for the church where it costs us nothing. I mean, if we're honest, most of us spend more money on Starbucks than we do on Jesus's mission. Most of us spend more money on our retirements than we do on Jesus and his mission. Most of us spend more money, more time. We think about ourselves way more than we do about Jesus and his mission. And and the reason Jesus wants to to come at us like this is because what, what a message like this will do, if you hear this and respond to this Jesus, here's what it does. It puts steel in your spine when you actually face hardship. If you're not prepared to sacrifice, if we're not prepared to sacrifice for Jesus and his mission, if we're not prepared to sacrifice our finances, our time, open our home, if we're not prepared to do these things, what's going to happen when the cost really gets ratcheted up? What happens when the government says, we're no longer going to give you tax receipts for your charitable giving? So that means you're not going to get 40% of your tax uh, of your, your giving to the church back. Well, I guess I'm not going to give that. What happens when it becomes illegal to preach the gospel from the front of a room like this? What, what happens then? Do we just shrink back? Do we, do we hide? A few years ago, Kelly and I had the privilege of going over to Thailand, and we spent some time with, with church planners over there, and we actually met with some church planners from uh, the country of Laos. Laos is a communist country starting to kind of soften in their uh, oppression of Christians. But we sat with this group of church planters. And I mean, they were, uh, you would look at them and you would think they they look like, you know, migrant peasant farm workers, which is pretty much what they were. And on the side, they were planting churches. And we would sit across from them and we couldn't obviously speak the same language. And so we would speak for, uh, speak through a translator. And I remember we would do this thing where, uh, a, a Canadian church planner would get up and share with the group and a Laos church planner would then get up and share with the group. And, and the idea was like, you know, we would share some things about what God's doing in our country and how hard it is to follow Jesus. And, you know, and the Canadian church planners would get up and we'd be like, well, man, you know, it's so hard. Like we can never get uh, the guy, and this is not you, Ian, I'm not talking about you. You do a great job. We can never get the guy, you know, doing the words to match the girl singing at the front. Like it's just, 
The guy doing the podcast, he never gets it up on time. It's always late, right? That's why you guys email, where's the podcast? Right? We can't, our people, they won't even eat a meal a week together. Like, it's impossible to get people. The average Christian in Victoria comes to church like one, comes to church gathering like once every four weeks. Like, it's so hard being us, right? The iPad for the kids signing, it never syncs with the Wi-Fi. Like, what the heck? Right? Man, it's, it's tough slogging here. Tough slog and being us. And then these Laos church planters would get up and they would share. And honestly, every single one of them had been in prison. They'd been in prison for preaching the gospel. The secret police would would come into their church gathering just like this, and they would sit there and they would listen. And the second that they preached the gospel, the second that they said something that would run against the grain of their particular culture, they would literally, on the spot, the police would come up to the front and arrest them. And they would, they would keep them in prison, and they would try and get them to recant from following Jesus. They would try and get them to, to, to commit to never preaching the gospel again, and these men would never do it. And this is what they would think. They would think, well, now I'm in prison. This must be where the Lord has me so that I can tell some of these people in jail about Jesus. Praise God. Right? Just like, just like the, the apostles and the early church, after they were beaten, they said, oh, they counted it a joy to be considered worthy suffering for the sake of the gospel. They'd have their houses burned down for the name of Jesus. They would have their families taken away for the name of Jesus. Jesus is saying, like, if you're going to follow me, this isn't a game. This isn't a game. There's a cost. Be willing to take a funny look at a party or a nasty email for the sake of Jesus. Be harmless as doves. Be shrewd as snakes. Be wise in how you teach and preach and share the gospel and how you live and and kill people with kindness, right? Live out the kingdom of God, but be prepared. Be prepared for this reality that there is a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. It has to cost us something. It costs Jesus his life. It has to cost us something. And we hear this and we get terrified. Jesus gives us hope. Thank goodness that this verse is in here. Look at what he says next. Verse 19, but when they arrest you, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're afraid. We're not worried about being arrested. We're worried about sharing the gospel with our coworker. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? Jesus like, don't worry. Here's why you don't have to worry. Look at what he says next. Don't worry about what to say or how to say it. Because at that time, you will be given what to say. Verse 24, it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father, the Holy Spirit, will be speaking through you. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. You don't have to fret. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of what to say to people. You don't have to be afraid of, of sacrificing for Jesus and his mission. You don't have to be afraid of, of 
following Jesus like, like sheep among wolves. Because the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. He's going to fill you. I think, I think one of the biggest inhibitors we have to living out Jesus' mission fully, we don't have a hard time inviting people into our home. We don't have a problem doing nice things for people. We can do all that. The hardest part comes when it's like, well, what do I say? How do I actually talk about Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us right here, you've been given the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fills you, empowers you, testifies in your heart the power, the reality of the gospel, but then he also preaches the gospel through you. And so let me just ask us, how many of us do we, do we pray to the Holy Spirit? How many of us ask the Holy Spirit to fill us? How many of us ask the Holy Spirit to use us? How many of us ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, what do you want me to say? In John's gospel, Jesus talks about this dynamic between our own power and the power of the Spirit. And here's what he says. He says, the flesh counts for nothing. The flesh meaning what we can accomplish in our own strength, in our own will. That counts for nothing. You can't produce spiritual fruit from the power of the flesh. He said, but the Spirit brings life. The Spirit of God actually produces life change. It produces life change in you, and it produces life change in others. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's because the Spirit of God did a work in your life. You're like, well, so-and-so told me about Jesus, and that's what... No, 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 the Spirit of God. I heard a sermon. No, 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 the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit's work. Now, let me, let me just come with me here on a bit of a journey. I'm going to assume, if you're here this morning, and you're a follower of Jesus, that you have a desire to grow in your faith, to grow in your relationship with Jesus, to grow in your ability to follow Jesus. Like you actually have a desire put in you by the Holy Spirit to honor Jesus with your life. You want to grow. You're not content to stay where you are. You don't want to just coast into retirement, coast into Christian retirement, you know, die, wake up, and see Jesus. You, you want to take the rest of your life to continue to grow in your faith. What Jesus is giving us here is the recipe for how that happens. Because what Jesus is putting out on the table for us is that we have to live a life that we cannot live in our own strength. We cannot live in our own power, but we can only live if the Spirit of God empowers us to do it. If you live a life where you are never challenged, where you are never confronted, where you are never put in a situation where you say to yourself, God, if you don't show up, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Here's my promise to you. You will not grow. You just won't. But if you live a life that forces you, whether it's how you order your finances or how you order your time or how you order your home, but how, just how you order your life, if you order your life in such a way that, that apart from God, you cannot accomplish the things that, that you are, have set out to accomplish, if you order your life in, in that way, then here's what's going to happen. It's beautiful, guys. The Spirit of God will meet you. The Spirit of God will fill you. The Spirit of God will empower you. The Spirit of God will enable you. And then guess what happens in that moment? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It might just be a little bit, but you grow. Your faith grows. Like, I didn't think I could do this. Guess what? You can't. 
Guess who did? The Spirit of God. Guess what happens? Your faith grows. Guess what now happens? You look a little bit more like Jesus. And then you do it again, and you look a little bit more like Jesus. And then you do it again, and you look a little bit more like Jesus. And, and step by step, and we're not, we're not talking about cataclysmic things, although it may be that, but step by step, over time, here's what happens. Sanctification. You look more and more like Jesus. Helpful analogy. It's, it's like going to the gym to work out. If you go to the gym and work out, and you never push yourself beyond your limits, you will not grow. You just won't. The way that your muscles grow is by you tearing them and then then healing. And when they heal, they heal that much stronger. So the next time, in order to tear that muscle again, you have to lift that much more or do that much more or run that much further. And then you grow and then you grow and then you grow. Same thing happens with your relationship with Jesus. If you live a comfortable life, if you have everything dialed in, if this is everything has a place and a place for everything, and that's your Christian life, you will not grow. You will not grow. You will wake up 20 years from now in the same place you are today because you don't need the Spirit to live that kind of life. You have full control over your life. Some of you think the Christian life is boring. It's because you're boring. Some of you have been following Jesus for a long time and your life looks... You've never led anyone to Jesus. You've never made a disciple. Jesus gave you one command, and it wasn't, it wasn't go to church. It wasn't be in small group. It wasn't go to DNA. It wasn't be in community group. It wasn't do this. It was, it was make a disciple. Make a disciple. That's your command. Make disciples who make disciples. And that's not even on your radar. You want to grow, make a disciple. Say, Lord, this week I want to make a disciple. This year I want to make a disciple. You will need the Spirit to do that. This Earlier this week, we, our community group leaders meet in these coaching clusters, and we're meeting in our coaching cluster. It was me and my wife, Kelly, and Mike and Anna Hevner, and Tim and Michelle Sparrow, and it was kind of our last meeting before the summer, and, and, and I asked the question, like, hey, what's one thing we can pray about for each other this summer? And Mike and Anna, this is Anna, this is exactly what Anna said, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I want everybody at West Village to, to say this. If you were asked, if you get asked, what is one thing I can pray about for you this summer or this year, whatever it is, this is the thing I want you to say. This is it. Write it down. Okay. Even if it's not true, just say it. Give me great encouragement. This is what she said. I just want to, I just want to make one disciple. I want to see our community group make one disciple. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen by a whole bunch of people pouring out their lives. It's going to happen by a whole bunch of people opening their homes, giving their money, reorienting around someone else so that they can be in the room at the same time to, to share the gospel, to live out the gospel. It's going to be a whole bunch of people saying, uh, okay, kids, I know we said that we're going to live our whole life for this sport, right? In my house, it's basketball. We're going to live our whole life for basketball. We're going to give that up so that someone else can meet Jesus. But yeah, we really, blah, blah, blah. I know, but guys, this is this is so important that it's, well, how are we, we're going to need Jesus. So we better start praying. We better start living differently. You know, and so instead of trying to add Jesus, add church, add mission to our already awesome lives, we say no to our awesome lives so we can say yes to the better life, which is the life Jesus has for us. And it includes being sent out 
like sheep among wolves, being dragged in front of people and told to give account for what we believe and us going, I don't know how to do this. I can't sacrifice. It's scary to send my kids to public school where they're gonna learn about lesbians and dinosaurs. I'm terrified. How are we gonna get through this? Jesus. 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 Do you need Jesus to live the life you're living? Do you need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life that you're living? Does your community group, does your community group need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life that it's living? This is why we say to our CGs, our community groups, mission needs to be the priority. You need to have a mission that you're radically reorienting your lives around. Because if not, you're just going to radically reorient your life around yourself. We do that very well already. We don't need a group to help us do that. And Jesus is saying, will you trust the Spirit? Will you put yourself in a situation where it's like, Jesus, if you don't show up, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And then we trust that I'll be there. When the wolves are coming in, when they're devouring everything that we've lived our lives for, where all our hopes and all our expectations are being taken away, Jesus swoops in and he saves you. You love him that much more. Third thing I need to move quickly here. Third thing Jesus calls us to is this in verse 21. And again, I guarantee you there is no church reading Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. On Father's Day in the city of Victoria, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Happy Father's Day. Children will rebel against their parents. Happy Father's Day again, and have them put to death a third time. Happy Father's Day. There you go, boy. <laughs> gentlemen. That's what you have to look forward to. What he says, verse 22, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. Again, this is what Jesus has been saying consistently through his gospel, that there is a cost associated with following me. He knows perfectly the relational discord that is going to come as a result of your decision to follow him. There is going to be a tension point. Again, this doesn't mean that the church is called to live in such a way that it's to be antagonistic. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But he is saying you need to realize that if you're going to follow me, you're swimming upstream. You're swimming upstream from the culture. And again, we don't really feel this in our safe Western North American society. We support a, a church plant in uh, Japan and Tokyo, Somafuchu. We're sending a team there this summer. We send them money every month. And we used to post their, their church updates on our social media page just so the church could know what was going on. And we actually got a message from Yoshi, the church planner there. He asked us to stop doing that. Because what was happening is that women were meeting Jesus. And they were getting baptized. But it would cause such great shame to their family that they had to keep it a secret from their husbands. There were some women who couldn't get baptized because it would have left them in such a place that they weren't sure what was going to happen. Not death, but just family strife. Would have had to, de 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 to denounce all family tradition. To take Jesus is to denounce much of what their family had lived for. This is a real thing in many parts of the world. I heard of a story of friends who are missionaries in, in a, a small village in a remote country in Africa. 
and some of the men in the village came to faith in Christ, and the, the chief of the village went and removed the family. If only they couldn't have their families anymore. It was their decision to follow Jesus. And when the missionary asked them, like, what do you, what do you guys want to do? So, well, is what you're saying true? Is Jesus Lord? Yeah, it's true. We will follow Jesus. There's a cost. It's a real cost. Again, Jesus gives us hope in the midst of this terrifying call, verse 22, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. To the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Uh, What he's saying here is those who remain faithful to me in the midst of intense persecution, hostility, I'll meet you there. I'll be enough for you. I will save. He's not talking about salvation. He's not saying you have to be a martyr to to actually be a Christian. But what he is saying is that if you aren't faithful, if you do not remain faithful, if you shrink back, if you fall away as a result of persecution, then it's possible that you didn't actually know me. It's possible that you were playing religious games. It's possible that you were playing church, but you weren't actually saved. You weren't actually following me. But if you stand firm, You will be saved. And then verse 23, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, Jesus gives encouragement. He's saying, I'm going to come again. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face hardship. In this case, for these men, it meant going from one town to the other, running from persecution, running from hardship, but I want you to stand firm because the Son of Man is going to come again. In Acts chapter 8, we see this picture of Jesus. This is after his resurrection. He comes before the disciples. He tells them the Spirit of God's going to come. He's going to fill them and send them out to be his witnesses. And then he leaves. He ascends into heaven. And the disciples are looking up at the sky like, where did Jesus go? Where is he? He was here, and now he's now He's gone. And it says that two men dressed in white, two angels come, and they say, fear not. In the same way he left, he will come again. In other words, what Jesus is saying, what what the angels were saying in Acts chapter 1 is, I know it's hard. I know there's pain. I know there's hardship. But don't forget, a day is coming where I will come again, and I will restore all things to the way that they are supposed to be. And there will come a day, friends. There will come a day where you will look Jesus in the face. You will see him eye to eye. He will look at you, and for all the pain and all the hardship and all the suffering and and all the things that you're going to go through, if you will actually follow Jesus like like sheep among wolves, here's what he's going to say. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. And the question that we keep bumping up against here this morning, and we've got to wrestle with this, 
Is that enough? Is that enough for us? So this is why Jesus is so straightforward with those who would consider following him. There are many times throughout the Gospels where Jesus had crowds. Crowds were never a good thing in the Gospels. Every time there was a crowd, Jesus would preach a message like this, and the crowds would thin out very quickly. People would walk away sad. People would deny him. People would leave. Because the cost was too high. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, there's going to be pain, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be hurt. This isn't, this isn't come follow me and you'll have your best life now. Come follow me and your marriage is going to be great. Come follow me and you're going to get to go to heaven when you die. Those, are, those things may or may not be true. What he's saying is, come follow me and you get me. Is that enough? That's what he says in the next couple of verses. Look at this, verse 24 and 25. The student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more are the members of his household? And so here Jesus is painting this picture for us where you have a student teacher, obviously Jesus is the teacher. The disciples, or us in this case, are the student. Uh, the word here, the Greek word for the word student, is the same word we use for disciple, mathetes. In other words, a student is going to become just like his teacher, a follower, a learner. You're going to become just like Jesus. That's actually what he says when he's talking about, that's what he's talking about, rather, where he says, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of the household. And if you remember, there's been many times in Matthew's Gospels where the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that word Beelzebub really just means Satan, where they've actually called Jesus Satan. They said, you've done this work by the power of Satan. You are a son of demons. That's what they, they've said of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if, if you, if they said that about me, they're going to say things like that about you. In other words, here's, here's what he's saying. Here, here's what Jesus is saying. If you do this, if you live like this, if, you're going to become like me. quiet in here today. It's quiet. Is that a win? Jesus would allow the wolves to devour everything. And all you got was him. Is that the win? Is that a win for you? So really this text isn't about what do we do. This text is really about what do we want. What do you want? 
hands so full with stuff. There's actually no room for Jesus. You see, if the win is a great marriage, financial prosperity, early retirement, some kind of Instagram awesome life, then a text like this has no room in your paradigm for following Jesus. It just doesn't fit. If the goal is your best life now, this doesn't fit. But if what you want is Jesus, if that's the win, if that's the victory, if that's the thing that can satisfy your soul like nothing else, then this starts to make sense. This is why I don't want to baby you. Because life is going to be hard. Life is going to come after you. Hard things are going to come your way. And if you have believed a different gospel than the gospel that Jesus preaches, you are on the shortcut, fast track to becoming jaded and angry with God. But if Jesus is your joy and your delight, if he is your treasure... And you're willing to give up everything for his sake. Many of you know uh, our family is just going through some stuff. Right? My, my wife's parents, Kelly's mom, was diagnosed with uh, cancer, stage four. It's aggressive. They have ways that they can increase the length of her life and a little bit of the quality of her life, but she is not going to live. She's 62. She turned 63 this summer. We had no idea. It just happened. We got a phone call. Went to the doctor, thought she had vertigo, found out she had cancer, and she's going to die. On Monday, she FaceTimed with her mom. And her mom was in the hospital. She'd been readmitted. She's not looking awesome. And I was just peering over her shoulder. Now think about this with me for a second. It's one thing to give up some money for Jesus. It's one thing to give up some of your free time or, you know, a kid's sport or something like that. But she's facing, Lisa is facing, in my opinion, the ultimate test. Her existence, her life, her breath, her physical life hangs in the balance. And apart from miraculous healing, she will die. That is the moment where you really find out what you truly believe. And I was just dropping eaves over my wife's shoulder, looking at my mother-in-law, who I could barely recognize. And Kelly was crying. And this is what her mom said. Why are you crying? It's going to be okay. Either God's going to heal me or I'm going to get to be with Jesus.
How do you say that? How do you say that? Because she had to come to this place where the wolves devoured everything. They're devouring her own physical body, and she was forced to ask the question, is Jesus enough? Is he better than my life, my breath? And by the grace of God, the Spirit gave her the faith to say yes. And what Jesus wants to do for us, church, if we will allow him, is to save us. To save us from ourselves. To save us from our selfishness. To save us from the pursuit of the North American dream with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on the side. That we, like the Apostle Paul would say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Or like Lisa would say, why are you crying? Why? I'm going to get to be with Jesus. Do you want him? Do you want him? Is he enough? I'm going to invite the band to come up. Sorry, I know this is heavy. But I have good news, church. Jesus doesn't just ask us to do this in our own strength, but he in every way has gone before us. Just as he calls us to go out like sheep among the wolves, he too was sent out like a sheep among wolves. And he allowed himself to be devoured. He went to the cross and laid down his life. And just like he calls us to be willing to be dragged before the courts, to have our reputations maligned, he too was dragged before the courts. If he was guilty of anything, which he wasn't, it was merely trying to love people, save the world. And yet they told lies about him and had him crucified. And just as he calls us to be willing to have discord in our relationships, even to the degree of having discord within our own family, Jesus knows what it is like to be betrayed and have his back turned on him, have others' backs turned on him by his own family. He went before us. He laid down his life. He poured out everything that we might experience salvation. And his invitation to us is to come to him. Come to him for salvation this morning. To come to him and recognize and realize that we need him. We need him. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot follow him. We have tried and we have failed. 
And we need to come to him for grace and we need to come to him for mercy. We're going to respond. We're going to respond in singing. We're going to respond by giving. We're going to respond by coming forward to take communion. We'll be stationed at the front of each of these aisles. And it's there where we are filled with what Jesus has done for us. It's there where we remember his body broken and his blood shed for us. And so the invitation for us is to come to the table and be filled with Jesus. But before you come, before you metaphorically take him in, just ask yourself, is Jesus all that I want? Is he better? Better than everything. Better than anything. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we need you. We need you. We need you. In this moment, would you meet with us? There's a heaviness in this room. There's a moment of conflict in all of our hearts where we are wrestling, wrestling with our own selfishness, with our own sin, with the brokenness in our world. We're wrestling with what we really believe about you. We're we're wrestling with our own walk and our own journey. Would you meet us in our place of wrestle? There's some who are here and it's wolves are everywhere. They're devouring Would you meet us? For some of us who are here, we're hiding. We're still in the barn. We lock the doors. We like our cozy, comfy life. Would you meet us? Would you meet us? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.